The Deep Dive with Nick Baby. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deep Dive podcast with Nick Babel. I'm your host, Nick Babel. Um, my guest today is Sean Branny. He is a writer, director, actor, and producer, um, and he's also a partner at the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. Um, Sean, thanks for doing the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Um, so, um. I guess my first question for you is uh, with all those different, you know, jobs in, in movies, writer, director, actor, producer, um, was, was there any one of those jobs in particular that you liked the best? Hmm. Well, you know, uh, I, I guess at the end of the day, I, I really uh, am mostly a producer and you know, it's, it's a term that's maybe not all that well understood by, by people who aren't working inside the entertainment business. But really, you know, a producer decides what project you're going to do and finds a way to get it done. So producers hire writers, hire directors, uh, you know, are involved in shepherding a project from its original concept all the way through execution. So um, it really is the, the great umbrella job. Uh, and some of the other jobs I do of writing and, uh, you know, editing or acting or whatever it may be, um, are, are kind of subcomponents that fall underneath, uh, fall underneath, uh, being a producer. So. Yeah. Did you get into doing like the, the little, the acting stuff, just, um, kind of necessity with, you know, you needed somebody to do a part. No, no, I, I have a master's degree in in acting from uh, CalArts. So, I mean, I, I was, you know, all, all my formal training is in theater. Um, both my colleague, Andrew Lehman, and I both, we actually met doing a play in Colorado back in the 1980s. Um, but, but both of us are classically trained actors and, uh, you know, have a pretty thorough background in that arena. I've done a lot of, you know, Shakespeare and other classics and things. And then my wife and I ran a, a professional theater company here in Los Angeles for, for many years. So uh, I've had a somewhere between a toe and a whole foot in that world for oh, nice. uh, much of my life. Um, but you know, one of the, the frustrating things in, about being an actor is that you're always looking to find your next role in somebody else's project. And oh when you can't find the kind of projects that you really want to do, that's when you, sometimes you got to flip the script and, and decide, okay, I'm going to produce my own project so that I can actually, you know, act in the kind of thing I want to do or create the type of project that I would like to be a part of. Yeah, that makes sense. Did, um, yeah. With the, the directing, uh, I know a lot of actors, you know, they always, they want to do it because mm -hmm. it's, you know, you know, being, being in charge, I guess. On, on what the I set. really want to do is direct. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty common refrain. <laughs> was that, was that something you enjoyed? Um, I, you know, I never, uh, like I said, my, my, my training and my background is not as a director, but was, was as an actor. Um, but when we formed our own theater company, uh, I ended up doing a lot of directing for the stage and I've directed a great many plays. Um, and it's, I don't know, you know, direct directing is 
satisfying because you do really have a hand in, in shaping the content, whether, whether it's a play or a motion picture or a radio drama or, or, or whatever, you, you know, a good director's job is to help the actors do their best and right. to try and bring out, you know, what, what's the best performance I can get out of this actor doing this material, try and orchestrate the different pieces so they play well together. Um, and, and, you know, that's the nature of that job. Uh, at the end of the day, actually, I, I think I probably am more capable as a director. I have a better aptitude as a director than, than perhaps as an actor. But, uh, you know, depending on the project, uh, I can like to do either or both, whatever. Um, so according to your IMDb, which, you know, they're not always super accurate, but um, I haven't looked at mine in years, so I'm not sure what it says, but <laughs> it, it has your last acting credit is in 2011. Um, is that accurate? And if so, do you, do you plan on returning to, to acting? Uh, you know, actually I've, I've done quite a lot of, uh, voice acting since then. The last, the last motion picture that I was in was in the whisper in darkness, which was released in 2011. Um, it's not something I really pursue on my own anymore. I, I will act in projects that, that, that our own company is doing. Um, or if a friend of mine says, Hey, you know, I'm making a short film. Would you, you know, do a part or a voice in it or something? Uh, sure. But yeah, it's not something I, I don't have a agent representing me for, for acting work. And it's not something I'm, I'm actively pursuing outside of, uh, the productions that, that we're making here at the HB Lovecraft Historical Society. Okay. Um, well, that leads me into my next question was tell me about the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. Um, where is it located and um, how can people find out more about it? Sure. We uh, are the largest organization of Lovecraft fans in the world. So we, we actually are a real society. We have members in, I don't know, 45 countries now, something like that. There's, oh. uh, they're, they're distributed all over the globe. Um, and the Lovecraft Historical Society is, you know, my, my colleague Andrew Lehman and I, we've, we've had a lot of fun with Lovecraft and his works over the years. And our basic goal is to share that fun and, uh, you know, share the enthusiasm that, that we feel for it. And that's led us to, uh, under the aegis of the HPLHS, we've produced uh, a couple of motion pictures and some audio books and some books with pages and paper and a bunch of uh, other audio projects and a whole variety of different types of entertainments that are either directly or, or indirectly inspired by the works of Lovecraft. So uh, we got a podcast going now and a few audio books and uh, you know, just a whole bunch of different uh, manifestations of this original material that, uh, like I said, we think it's fun and we, yeah. we enjoy sharing it with other audiences. So um, the society itself is, uh, we, our headquarters is based uh, where I am right now, which is in Glendale, California. Um, we actually have a brick and mortar store. This is, these are <laughs> shelves behind me are part of our library here in, in the front room of our, our, uh, our store. So we sell products and things like that. And then we manufacture and ship out a lot of the products that we make uh, from our, our headquarters here in Los Angeles. So um, um, do, do people send you different collectibles and stuff? Um, they, they do. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a pretty good collection and library of, of uh, things that we've amassed over the years. Uh, some people send us odds and ends on their own, or sometimes we go and buy, you know, things that uh, 
we think are worth uh, adding to our collection here. And so we've amassed a, you know, we've been, we've been at this uh, for, it's creeping up on 40 years now. So <laughs> we've wow. been at it a long time and have acquired a, a, a fair bit of stuff here uh, under our roof. But um, like I said, our membership is, is really global and all over the place. So we do have uh, a big uh, online website with a lot of resources that are free for anybody to, to come and check out um, the different kinds of things that we do and have available. Um, we also, I was saying we do a, a podcast too about uh, Lovecraft's letters, which is a free thing that uh, is out there for people who want to learn about uh, Lovecraft as a correspondent. Uh, it's called Voluminous and uh, it's one of the other undertakings of the society. Nice. Is that, that's available on all the podcast apps? Any place you go to get podcasts. Yeah. And like I said, it's called, called Voluminous. And um, in addition to writing, uh, weird fiction tales back in the 20s and 30s. Lovecraft was also one of uh, one of the world's most voluminous writers of correspondence. He wrote uh, possibly as many as 100,000 letters over the course of his lifetime. Oh, wow. uh, and so he documented his own life in incredible detail. And while only about 10% of the letters he wrote are still extant, that's still you know 10,000 letters. It's many, many books worth uh, yeah. of his correspondence because some of the letters can run 60, 70 handwritten pages. Um, so he put all this, uh, uh, after he died, uh, one of his friends, a fellow named August Derleth and his partner, Donald Wandre, contacted all the people who corresponded with Lovecraft and said, hey, if you still have any of Howard's letters, please send them over to us. We want to type them out. We'll keep the typed copies with us. We'll send you back your original letter. And because they did that, they were able to, uh, you know, save a whole lot of these letters from destruction, and they've gone on to be published. So, wow, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that about them. That especially yeah, back- some, something that not uh, not everybody realizes that uh, that's he he wrote far more correspondence than he wrote uh, fiction or or poetry or essays or anything else. He uh, the greatest output he did was just writing to his his friends and colleagues. And like you said, you've been doing this for 40 some years. It's it's interesting because Lovecraft, I believe now, I feel like now he's kind of, he's getting a whole new wave of fans. Yeah, he really is. It's, it is, he would be so shocked uh, as a man who died in obscurity and believing he was a, uh, a failure as an artist to know that there are, you know, that there's a society about his work, that there's fans all over the world, that things are being done in all kinds of different languages and movies and, you know, uh, audio recordings and, you know, artworks and tons of different media, you know, uh, he's never been more popular than he is right now. And doing my, my research, uh, I wanted to delve in a little bit, but not, not too much. Um, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm a Stephen King fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, I, I like some horror stuff. And Lovecraft's always been um, intimidating to me, almost. Um, sure. I've just felt, you know, I felt like it's its own world, kind of. And, and you know, I've always liked seeing Lovecraft stories and, you know, TV shows and stuff. And, and um I guess it's funny. My first foray into Lovecraft really would be Metallica songs um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they have a couple songs that are based off of Lovecraft stuff. Uh, the instrumental call of Cthulhu, Cthulhu. And um, right. they have another one called the thing that should not be. And it's, yep. 
And um, so that's the first time I think I heard about Lovecraft hmm. back when I was, you know, a young teenager. Sure. Listening, listening to that. But um, yeah, I guess so. Like I was saying, it's it's becoming more and more. He's becoming really popular. There was that HBO show, uh, Lovecraft, yeah, Lovecraft Country. Country. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that? You know, um, uh, first of all, just to, to address your opening point, is that you know he he his popularity does absolutely seem uh, to be on the rise, and you're in in no way alone in terms of finding the actual stories and the actual literature, it's difficult. It is not easy reading and it is not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and there's plenty of people who don't particularly care for the literature of Lovecraft, but they like the the world of it and the things that it's inspired, like the music from Metallica or graphic novels or TV shows like Lovecraft Country. So, uh, you know, Love, Lovecraft Country, the television show, it, it wasn't really my bag um you know that i think for people who are really lovecraft fans uh, once you watch a show it's kind of light on lovecraft you know it's really about uh you know social justice issues in the you know in in america certainly in the the middle of the century um and using the sort of lovecraftian lens to make a, a commentary about that and uh, you know, more power to him. I'm, I, I think that's a, a fine ambition. But for people who are like, "Ooh, this is going to be a neat HBO Lovecraft series," mm, I kind of miss the mark a little bit. It's on not that. really quite that. So um, it's based on a, a novel by a fellow named Matt Ruff uh, called Lovecraft Country. The first episode of the series cleaves pretty closely to the book, and then the series goes off and explores different things in its own way. So um, you know, we're we're glad to see his name getting out there, but of the many Lovecraft projects, it's not perhaps the most representative of uh, his story, his writings, or, you know, um, specifically the sorts of things that he was after. So, Well, that's one thing I did come across. Um, actually, your film there, The Whisperer in Darkness, mm -hmm. that's, it's widely considered one of the, the more accurate representations of Lovecraft. Um, and I mean, I saw a lot of different people say that online so i mean yeah you know when when we set out to make our films you know there's <laughs> we would never say that you know there's there's not a right way or a wrong way to adapt uh, a piece of literature into a motion picture but when we made our first movie the the call of cthulhu we really there had been so many lovecraft films that really took a great deal of liberties with the original stories and updated them and put in naked girls and shower scenes and, you know, things that, that Lovecraft right. never would have, would have had in his stories. And so when we did the Call of Cthulhu, we wanted something that really had the feeling of the 1920s and 30s, the, the era in which uh, he was writing. And uh, the same thing with our, our film, The Whisper in Darkness, you know, we wanted it to, you know, be, be truthful. We wanted to keep the elements of the story that we thought were really great. And we thought that fans really liked about that story and we wanted to keep those alive in the movie rather than, you know, kind of covering them up by bringing in new elements that were were never part of it in the first place. So. Yeah, and I think a lot of people definitely noticed that from from the different reviews and stuff I saw online about. Yeah, it, so. we you know we we feel very gratified that that you know there were a number of fans out there that enjoyed uh, you know both the motion pictures and have been super supportive of of what we've been trying to do. So. Um. So. 
I guess the next part of my uh, podcast is it's called the deep dive. So um, we've already kind of started it, but so I kind of want to deep dive into Lovecraft um, kind of into the mysticism of Lovecraft. Hmm. Um, You know, I read a few articles on that as well. And um, there was a lot of, you know, people talking about how his work was, uh, you know, where a lot of the, the fiction writers of the day were more positive and his stuff was considered kind of like, you know, doom and gloom more. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's somewhat of a fair assessment? I mean, I know there's, it's more, you know, detailed, but. Yeah. I, you know, in, in terms of what, he believed and what he was trying to do with his stories. He he described himself as being a scientific materialist. Uh, You know, he didn't believe in, didn't believe in God and he didn't believe in, he thought religion was all just a bunch of hokum. Um, He learned a lot about astronomy when he was a, a very young boy. And he really grasped the magnitude of space, which, Honestly, you know, most most of us don't really appreciate just how big the the universe is, and so in Lovecraft's to Lovecraft's mind, the Earth is just this small little watery speck of dust that's whirling around a not particularly important sun that's part of a relatively minor galaxy that's out there in the you know. Uh, that relative to the vastness of space, the human experience is really of no consequence whatsoever. And so to him, what was interesting is what, what mysteries, what forces, what, what things are out there in that great unknown beyond. And so he tended to, to be very dismissive of things like the human experience and human emotions and the, the good guy winning in the end and the guy getting the girl and the kiss being the, the big moment. He was like, ugh, you know, that none of that stuff matters. Let's, let's actually, you know, peel, peel back somehow the, the night sky and let's think and wonder about the things that are, are out there so beyond our own comprehension. And so that was what he wanted to to sort of get at and do in his stories. And some of them are more successful than others. Right. But I think this, this sort of notion of Lovecraft as the pessimist kind of comes about because he, he just honestly wasn't that interested in humanity and its achievements and accomplishments. He, he really was fascinated by, you know, the beyond, the profoundly unknown uh, was I, what really floated his boat. And I think that's, one of the big things that makes him different too um Mm -hmm. because when you hear his name among some of the other like uh ray bradbury or um was oh hg wells you know early fiction writers and stuff um his stuff's so different and you know kind of like you were saying you know he kind of died in obscurity and i mean bradbury didn't you know, he was, he had a modicum of success, but if you ask people today that more of them have heard of H.P. Lovecraft than Ray Bradbury or H.G. Wells, I, I believe. 
Yeah, I, I think in the end, Lovecraft ended up being more influential than those guys. And don't get me wrong, you know, Bradbury and Wells are, are you know, tremendous writers. You know, Stephen King's an incredibly successful writer, but who had more influence on other people? I think it was, you know, I think it was poor, obscure Howard Lovecraft, um, who, who I think in that literary theory of his about, about writing about the, the, the truly unknown, you know, I, I think he touched on some nerve that 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 a lot of people as readers feel and they read his works or see you know films that are, are closely inspired by his works and it it strikes this sort of eerie and uncomfortable chord that's like you know other people are giving us stories of zombies you know and oh i don't want to be eaten by a zombie well nobody wants to be eaten by a zombie <laughs> you know and oh i don't want to be eaten by a shark well nobody wants to be eaten by a shark nobody wants to be eaten by the killer car christine you know but you know, but there's something in these, these, you know, the out, outer, you know, are they gods? Are they monsters? Are they aliens? We, we don't even know what they are. These, these things right. that are out there in that great empty vastness of space who deal with, you know, time is a completely different thing to them and distance is a completely different thing to them. And they're ev everything out there is so much bigger than poor little humanity here here hanging out on earth so yeah um that's you know and getting back to my previous point that's part of the intimidation factor i think for for some people is you know the the great unknown and the you know the you know frankly the weirdness of some of the monsters and and stuff like that and um sure. you know to be honest with you i'm i'm probably going to start buying some some H.P. Lovecraft novels and stuff because I do want to get into it more. Um, well, you know, it's like I said, it's not for everybody, but you might want to, you know, give it a test drive and and see if you, you know, you find, wow, I, I really enjoy this, and because uh, the people who do like it tend to like it a lot. So yeah, and like you said, you know, ultimately he gets the last laugh almost because, <laughs> uh, you know, he's I I I would guess that there's because Hollywood's very copycat. You know, I would guess that there's some movies and TV shows in the, you know, in the workings right now. Oh, yes, there are. So. That, that are going to come out in the next few years, kind of to capitalize on the success of, you know, Lovecraft Country and stuff like that. Yeah, I think we'll only continue to see more and more, you know, uh, works by Lovecraft uh, adapted as, you know, major motion pictures, television series, that kind of thing. I think... Uh, there have been some already, but uh, it's definitely here to stay. So getting back to the mysticism part of it. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I did read read that, and, and you definitely said that Lovecraft was an atheist. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think he would be kind of mortified that some people have kind of used his work as their own, its own religion a little bit? Yeah, I, I think he, I, I don't know if he'd be mortified, but I think he'd roll his eyes and go, Ugh, what a, what are you people thinking? Because um, you, you do see religion shows up uh, relatively regularly in Lovecraft stories. And it's often in the form of cults that worship these ancient gods and these, these you know, um, superhuman creatures. And, you know, for Lovecraft, I think they were, 
sort of a, a human embodiment of, of chaos and fear. You know, he was he was a, a kind of a buttoned up, uh, straight laced New England uh, kind of guy. So for him, the sort of craziness of the, the and the wild things that cultists get up to at night was a, a great thing for a horror tale. But yeah, the notion that that you know some people are just absolutely convinced that the Cthulhu mythos is real and that he was a visionary, you know, uh, channeling this stuff unconsciously, um, you know, and that it's all the, the mythology that Lovecraft created as part of some greater truth. I think, yeah, Lovecraft would be, would be rolling <laughs> his eyes and you know, trying to talk people out of it. But, uh, you know, there are certainly we, over the years, we've met a number of people who are, you know, take their, Lovecraftian religion or, you know, uh, very, very seriously, you know, and really see it as a, as a valid, uh, you know, religious worldview. So, you know, yeah, uh, you know, okay. I think some entertainment things have kind of taken it in that way a little bit too. I don't know if you ever saw this show, uh, Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They did a whole Lovecraft. I think it was a couple episode thing and they kind of made it like he was a, you know, a visionary that yeah, he, a prophet or something. Yeah. yeah, he saw some stuff and then wrote about it, kind of thing. But I just that is fascinating that a guy that you know he and you know his whole mythos is you know like you said the cult of religion, the cult of stuff. You know, has kind of led to its own. You know call of yep no it's it's crazy but that's that's the way of the world i guess so that's true um so you were saying he wrote a lot of uh you know letters and stuff how many how many published novels did, do you know offhand um did, did he publish in his time zero oh not a one um, no, really, uh, for all intents and purposes, no, none of his works were published in book form during his lifetime. Oh, wow. He mostly wrote short stories, uh, for, and they were published in the pulp magazines. He wrote a couple of short novels that, um, he didn't think much of, and he hated typing and he thought it would be such a chore to type those longer manuscripts that he never even typed them. He left them in his desk drawer and it was only friends of his after his death that finally took those, those uh, novel length manuscripts and actually typed them up. So, uh, you know, the fact that, that there are a great many published book versions of his works now would blow his mind because he really died believing, you know, he'd been a failure and that his works weren't successful and nobody was ever going to like them and wasn't going to read them. And uh, all the deals he had to try and get book collections of his stories published during his lifetime all came to naught. Um, so it was, you know, it was very frustrating for him and uh, very different during his lifetime than it, it went on to be, you know, later well, in the century. That's some good friends. <laughs> yeah. They're friends. pretty, pretty cool guys. There were, um, it's funny too. It reminds me of Shakespeare that, you know, Shakespeare's plays were published individually, but there was no collection of them during Shakespeare's lifetime. Um, and and it was after Shakespeare's death that his friends were like, you know, we should get Will's plays (laughs) together and make like a nice book out of them or something. And it was kind of the same concept for Lovecraft, although he was a little more obscure, but, um, his colleagues, uh, August Derleth and Donald Wandre 
right after his death, were like, oh, you know, somebody should have published Howard's stuff. Well, well, let's try and get it published. And so they shopped around to a bunch of different publishers and, you know, presented the, the plan for a book of Lovecraft stories and nobody bought it. So finally, the two guys decided, well, okay, let's form our own publishing company and we'll print it. And uh, so they did the first collection of Lovecraft stories, which was called The Outsider uh, and Other Stories. Um, which came out a couple of years after Lovecraft's death. And their original plan was to publish a book of uh, the stories, a book of the poems and essays, and a book of the letters that Lovecraft wrote because he was this, this famous correspondent. And they ended up, you know, Arkham House stayed around as a publishing company. You know, they're still in, in print today. Um, and a lot of they print works by Lovecraft and, and other authors. Um, but one of the other really important things that that happened was with this whole thing of Lovecraft's letters, these two guys, uh, Derleth and Wandry, they wrote to all of Lovecraft's correspondence and said, hey, if you have some letters from Howard, if, if you don't mind, send them over to our offices. We're gonna retype them all. We'll send you back the original manuscripts and then we're gonna make a book of the letters. Well, they, they didn't realize how many letters were out there. They had no idea uh, that we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of letters. So, they they did their project eventually. They they got the letters that people sent them, and they published selections of certain letters, which is a five volume set uh, mm. of letters, and that represents a tiny portion of the letters overall. Um, but a lot of the the original manuscripts went on to get lost. So it was really only because these guys had borrowed the original letters from the correspondence that a lot of that work was saved. So. Do you think that would be an uh, interesting project for somebody to do is to make kind of a, a biography movie based on his letters? You know, uh, somebody's written a script. There's a, a, a fairly famous uh, scholar of Lovecraft. Uh, yeah, of Lovecraft's work named S.T. Joshi. Um, and he, he's written the definitive biography of Lovecraft. Uh, and he wrote a biopic about Lovecraft and his marriage and, and his life. And because Lovecraft documented his own life in such exhaustive de detail through these letters, that if you read them in the correct chronological order, man, you'll find out what he had for breakfast on Thursday, June 6th, 1923. You know, <laughs> you'll know what he had for breakfast on the 24th. If you read them all in sequence, you'll, you'll, you'll really get a very detailed portrait of, you know, the man and his life. So, um, so, some people end up really fascinated by Lovecraft, the man. Uh, some people are more interested in in his creations and the things that he wrote. So, um, but there is one pretty good movie that's out there now. It's called Out of Mind. It was made uh, almost 20 years ago for Canadian television. Huh. And it's this fascinating sort of mashup of three or four different Lovecraft stories. And Lovecraft himself is a character in the movie played wonderfully by this uh, Canadian actor named Chris Heyerdahl. Um, and it's really, it's pretty terrific. I think it's on YouTube uh, these days, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good one and a good one that uses Lovecraft as a character in a story that's sort of built out of his own stories. It's very clever, so. Yeah, that seems like a, an interesting way to do it. Yeah. You know, and like we were saying with, you know, his, his current popularity, I could definitely see somebody, you know, and the popularity of biopics because they've been doing different people like uh, Freddie Mercury and um, sure. uh, the other big one, Elton John. And yeah. I mean, 
you know, you could definitely see somebody doing that because like you said, the source material is so specific and detailed that, you know. Yeah. And, you know, he's an interesting guy and he's full of a lot of contradictions and, uh, you know, there, he has a lot of shortcomings as a person and he has a lot of really, you know, lovely and admirable traits too. You know, like most of us, he's, you know, he's complicated and, you know, multidimensional. So. And it must've been difficult to be an atheist back, back in those days too. Sure. Um, because, you know, I mean, he lived, he, he lived up here in the Northeast, right? Um, right. He, he lived most of his life in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. And, you know, that's not, that's not the deep South, obviously, but still, yeah. still the 19, you know, the 1920s, everybody had their own religion, basically, you know, Protestants, Catholics, different types of, you know, Christians and, and stuff. Yeah. So was he openly atheist? Do you know? Yeah, he was, he was pretty frank about it. You know, he didn't go to church and, uh, in his correspondence with his friends and things, he would, you know, uh, with some of them, they would, you know, talk religion. And he's, he's pretty emphatic about his reliefs and beliefs. And it's really, you know, I really think it was his introduction to astronomy at a really young age that just left him with the conclusion that the notion of some, you know, human-shaped guy on a throne who rules and commands everything was just preposterous to him, you know, that that uh, anybody would care about the goings-on of people on Earth just seemed silly to him because, again, Earth was so very small in such a vast expanse of the cosmos. Yeah, it makes you wonder what he would think of, uh, like, Star Trek or, you know. Mm, yeah, uh, science fiction like that. He, some of the science fiction of his day, uh, you know, he, he was an early writer of science fiction, but uh, yeah, I think good science fiction, you know, some science fiction is very thoughtful and, you know, is a great lens through which to make a commentary about our modern age. Uh, yeah, I'd, I've never really thought whether he would have liked Star Trek or not, or, but yeah, I mean, no, maybe he would, so. It'd probably be a little too optimistic for him. But. It, it would probably, yeah, the, you know, it's a little tidy for, for him, but, you know, uh, but he might, he might find some of it thought provoking. But, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, everybody wants to, now that TV is very serial, serialized and it's not, you know, you know, one-off episodes, Star Trek's even kind of moving that way too. It, it, right. it, it kind of be interesting to see somebody do an HP Lovecraft take like a, on a, like a Star Trek episode kind of thing, mm. you know, yeah. like maybe some, Cthulhu kind of monster out in space <laughs> or something but yeah well no doubt no <laughs> doubt there's writers who have already written a script like that and are chopping it around trying to find a home for it so exactly um so I guess um my last question really would be like um and you've already said one thing but what are some things people might not know about Lovecraft and uh in his and his stories Hmm. Well, I think one of the, the most common misconceptions about Lovecraft is that he was this sort of shut-in reclusive guy who, who you know, only went out at night and didn't have any friends and, you know, was a sort of hermit kind of guy. And that's, that's really just not him at all. He was a really quite a 
social man. You know, he didn't, particularly late in his life, he didn't have much money, but he went to great efforts to, to try and travel and go see friends. And, you know, he lived in Rhode Island, but he loved going up to, to the Massachusetts coast. And he went as far up as, uh, he went to Quebec City a couple times and went as far down as the Florida Keys, uh, New Orleans. Uh, he loved Charleston. So, you know, as a, just as, as a man, this notion of, of him somehow being, you know, isolated, it just wasn't him at all. And all his friends, as much, you know, they liked getting letters from him, but um, the when he would gather together with some of his writer pals, you know, everybody recounts these, you know, good times with all the guys downstairs and Howard was yammering on till four in the morning and, you know, <laughs> he was a raconteur and liked to, you know, tell stories and, you know, was very socially engaged with his friends. And so I think, you know, that's one of the, the places where popular culture sometimes doesn't get uh, Lovecraft right, you know. Um, he was married for a few years. Uh, the, the marriage was you know, odd in several ways, but, uh, you know, there are some people who wonder about, you know, Lovecraft sexuality and things. And, you know, there's not a, a whole lot to go on there. Cause he didn't, you know, he was a, he was a, a gentleman and gentlemen do not speak of such right. things very much, but you know, he, he was married and his wife seemed to be incredibly fond of him. Um, you know, so there are a lot of notions of him being sort of the social misfit that just don't really seem to be borne out very well by the facts. Um, you know, and he was a really a kind and helpful mentor to lots of young writers who were getting their start and would write to him and ask for advice. And, you know, he helped, uh, he helped a whole bunch of young writers kind of get on the, the path and giving them good advice and telling them what to read and, you know, helping uh, steer the careers of some of his, uh, his younger protégés. So, so I think that's, you know, that's a, a, a good place to, you know, challenge some of the assumptions about Lovecraft, the man. And, right. you know, I think in terms of the stories, like, you know, I was saying before, and, and you were mentioning in terms of feeling intimidated by them, um, you know, it's not without good cause. Uh, his, right. his fiction is, is difficult. Um, it is challenging. Some of it, you know, he was, he loved Edgar Allan Poe. And in some of it, he's really trying to ape the style of Poe. And, you know, Poe's 1830s, 1840s, you know, it's an old-fashioned style of writing. The vocabulary is different and difficult. The syntax is different and difficult. And, you know, that, right. that kind of quality is there with Lovecraft, too. So, um, so two of the things I, you know, sometimes recommend for people who are kind of in your shoes of going, Hmm, I'm interested in this guy. I don't know if I'm going to like these stories that are, you know, that are long and hard. Is is um, there are some great audiobooks uh, of Lovecraft where when somebody else has to do the reading, <laughs> a lot of times the that reader will make sense of this complicated language. And when you hear it spoken by another human being, you go, "Oh yeah, I get what he's saying." And when you're reading it off the page, you're like, "What? Huh?" You know. Uh, and some of the difficult words that you might not know, but when you hear them spoken in context, you're like, oh yeah, okay. I, you know, I'm, I'm getting the gist of all this. So uh, I think hear, hearing Lovecraft can be a terrific way to enjoy it. And then, um, you know, we've, shameless self-promotion here, but we've done a whole set of uh, radio dramas of Lovecraft's work. And those are like movies that you can listen to, you know, there's sound effects yeah. and there's music and all the actors and, and all the, 
you know, the exciting bits are pumped up and the, the, the slower, duller bits are cut out. And so, the, you know, they really move along and feel like a motion picture. And it's a way that, that, that I think makes a number of the stories a lot more user friendly to people who just aren't used to, you know, the, that style of kind of prolix literature that Lovecraft himself liked to write in. So. And where can you find those uh, radio broadcasts? Well, our stuff, everything we do is, is at uh, our website. Uh, you can Google us uh, through, you know, Lovecraft Historical. We'll, we'll come up first, but uh, our URL is hplhs.org. Um, we have a big online store where, you know, we, we, you can, you know, download audiobooks of ours or radio plays of ours that we've done. But, um, you know, certainly there's all kinds of Lovecraft stuff that's out there for free on the web. Uh, all our stuff is available on Audible. So people who are members of that, you can get it there. Um, so there's a lot of different places that, uh, that folks can turn, you know, to get some content that they can enjoy. Nice. I'm, that's probably where I'm going to start then. All yeah. right. Sounds like a good place. Um, I guess I was just thinking, you know, being a historical society and I've, I've been to a couple different historical societies in you know, my lifetime, what's, um, what's like the rarest thing you've seen come in or that you guys have found in the, Oh, well, I guess the rarest things, in, in, at least specific to Lovecraft, we now have, uh, an original manuscript of one of his letters and one of his postcards. We also have a couple of his own textbooks from when he was in school. So oh. we have his Greek and his Latin textbooks uh, that he had growing up and you know he wrote his name on the inside cover and things like that. And it's, it's pretty neat to have volumes that he actually used during his lifetime. Um, we have some other, you know, we, we have a book from the 17th century called the Astronomicon, which uh, in Lovecraft's writing, there's a famous, uh, grimoire of magical spells, a forbidden book called the Necronomicon. And it seems right. fairly likely that he lifted the name Necronomicon from this real book, the Astronomicon. So we have a copy of that here, but uh, we have a lot, we have a, quite a number of texts from the, the 20s and 30s too. You know, we have some of the, the old pulp magazines and other reference documents that we use all the time from the, from the time in which he was living. Nice. Yeah, you know, the, the Necronomicon seems to be one of those things that has gotten into popular culture too, yeah. but anytime, it has they a life of its book, own. anytime there's an evil book in anything, it's always the Necronomicon. Yeah. And for being a really rare book, man, that thing turns up everywhere. <laughs> I know those evil dead movies. Yeah. They, definitely. They really promoted it. So. <laughs> but, um, well, Sean, um, plug anything that, that you want to plug the podcast. Uh, what was the podcast name again? Yeah. Our, our podcast is called voluminous. Uh, like I said, any, any place that you get podcasts, it'll be there free. Uh, the first year we did it uh, once a week and that was killing us. So we decided to, to slow it down to once a month. So now the first Sunday of every month, a new issue of uh, or episode of voluminous drops and uh, you'll hear, we, we read aloud uh, a letter from Lovecraft and then uh, my colleague Andrew and I, you know, have a discussion of, uh, of, you know, what we think is interesting about that particular letter. So that's good fun. Uh, we have Dark Adventure Radio Theater. That's the name of our series of these audio dramas. Uh, we're working on right now our 25th and 26th episodes of that. Uh, motion Pictures, The Call of Cthulhu, The Whisper in Darkness. And over at hplhs.org, we got all kinds of fun stuff for the Lovecraft fan or the would-be, wanna-be, maybe I'll be Lovecraft fan too. <laughs> all right, Sean. 
Uh, thanks again for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, oh, my pleasure. It's, uh, talking Lovecraft, that's my job. So, uh, no, it's good fun, <laughs> and I appreciate your uh, your interest, and uh, hope you enjoyed. Yep. Thanks again. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Thanks again to Sean Brainy for doing the, the podcast. Um, if you want to support the pod, please like, subscribe, follow on as many of the podcast apps as you can. Um, it really helps the podcast the more, the more interactions we get. Um, you can also support the social media pages, the Deep Dive Podcast with Nick Babel on Facebook and the new Instagram page, the Deep Dive Pod with Nick Babel um, on Instagram, um, where we're going to be posting some relevant pics, um, you know, that'll be posted around each episode of the podcast, um, depending on what we're talking about. Um, if you want to listen to a funny podcast um, that I recommend to you, that's, that's not my podcast. Um, it's a funny, yet sometimes emotionally deep podcast, um, you know, where the hosts have great chemistry. Um, they've been through some tough times and they, they talk it out, uh, in a funny manner on the podcast. Uh, check out Twisted Sisters with Jenny and Suze. Um, they're on, they're available on pretty much all of the podcast apps as well. Um, the next episode of the deep dive with Nick Babel will drop Monday, um, Monday morning. And the guest will be Adam Seaman. Uh, we take a deep dive into the prohibition era of the mafia. Um, so thanks once again for everybody for listening and, uh, keep supporting the pod and I'll keep doing it. Have a good day.